There's no such thing as like women's writing or writing for women. I was polite, but I just went for it when so many people were just saying no. I had the luxury of writing what I cared about the most for a long time. I want to publish like amazing, brilliant, urgent, strange, innovative fiction. Think about every scene ending with a bitch slap. I'm Lex Altrom. And I'm Lee Stein. And this is The Binder Cast, a conversation series featuring our favorite women and gender nonconforming writers. This week, we're talking about writing taboo with Wendy Ortiz, a writer and therapist who's the author of three memoirs, Excavation, Hollywood Notebook, and Bruja, which hits stores at the end of 2016. Lee, I got a question for you. When you were a teenager, were there any books that you felt kind of spoke to your experience or captured what it was like to be a teen girl? I really loved reading Francesca Leah Block. She was my number one, but also Sylvia Plath. And I also read a lot of plays as a teenage girl because I was an actress, an aspiring actress. And everything I loved was all about like tragic and violent love. And I just thought like, this is going to be me someday. Like this was my dream to just like kill yourself for love. I also loved Francesca Leah Block. I feel like in some ways it was a little bit more aspirational than like what I what I really felt my actual life was like. There was a lot less magical realism than I would have liked. And uh, the the one time I tried to make wings like Cherokee Bat does, it did not work out very well. I did wear wings to high school. I made them out of coat hangers. Nice. Oh, I tried and it, it was miserable. It, did, <laughs> it was a huge, huge failure. Um, but I bring this up because Wendy's first book actually – was in part inspired by the fact that when she was growing up and being a teenager and going through all of that, you know, she wasn't finding books that really spoke to her experience, which in part is because it was a little bit unusual. Wendy's first book, Excavation, offers an unflinching look at her teenage years, exploring the complicated, exciting, painful, and very taboo relationship she had with her middle school English teacher, who she started dating in her early teens. Out in L.A., I chatted with Wendy about what it's like to publish a memoir about something seen as off-limits by most mainstream publishers, and, of course, what inspired her to write the book in the first place. What inspired me really was that as I was going through the experience that the book describes, I was looking for books that were just like this. I wanted to read somebody else's story of what was happening. I already knew that I was a writer at this age. So I was looking for the book. I was starting to write about what was happening, but calling it fiction and using a lot of other different characters to sort of fill it in because I was trying to understand the situation myself. So I knew that I was going to write the book eventually, but I mainly wrote it because I was looking for something. I was looking for this story. This is not a story that I get to read very often except for in newspaper articles, which obviously is a very different thing than reading somebody's experience. Wendy started writing her story back when she was a teenager, initially writing the themes into fiction as a way of processing the experience. Over the years, she experimented with other forms – poetry, prose, chronological tellings of the tale, explicit explorations of her sexual development. By 2002, I had the first major draft. And then 
because of the content, because of life, um, I would pick it up, put it down, many, many years of doing that. And also just fear of what would happen if this story came out, what what it would look like, how friends might treat me, how my family might treat me. Um, so it took many years to kind of get the courage to go, okay, I'm ready now for this to come out. And certainly I was ready for it to come out before it came out. Um, I was trying to sell it um, and finding that it was a very tough sell. And not merely a tough sell to publishers, but also to some of the people in her life as well. Putting it out on Facebook, where I have tons of friends who I actually went to school with who knew this teacher, that was scary. But what's happened since then is people have, like, sent me private messages, told me that, you know, they understood that the culture of our school kind of probably helped with this situation. Um, the culture of the school was a little bit loose. It was a small private school. And, like, yeah, I'm... I'm almost positive other things happened there that didn't even involve this teacher. So um, I've had people reach out to me and say, yeah, I felt like something was funny, but I didn't have the words for it, which, you know, was affirming to hear. And then I've certainly had people in my life come forward and tell me that they've had similar situations, not with necessarily teacher-student, but a lot of talk about power dynamics and relationships where they felt similar to the narrator of this book, of the, you know, the 13, 14-year-old narrator. Which is you. Yes, which is me. I always like to, to call that person the narrator, though. Uh, I, like I, I still you... contain her, but, you know, she's, like, not the main narrator of my life anymore. And so to me, and I'm, I'm always talking and thinking about the characters that, that are inside of me. It's like I always have, like, a 14-year-old me and the 21-year-old me and the 28-year-old me. 35, I haven't really got – we're not talking yet. But I talk to the rest of them, and they have specific things that they tell me. And I'm like, okay, yes, I remember you. So to me, those are, like, the narrators of those periods of time, those, like, specific formative periods of time that I still pull from to write these books. So Hollywood Notebook, to me, like that narrator, I can't really access her so well anymore. Who I was at 28, 29, 30, it's pretty hard to access now. So that's, that's what I mean when I say narrator. Like, they're all here, they're all here, but they're separate at the same time. There have been times when I open up to any page in excavation when I'm by myself and I read something and I'm like, whoa, I can't believe that's out there. I can't believe that I put this out there. Um, so it can feel a little bit dangerous sometimes to completely just like own this and say, this is me and who I am now, because it's just not like I've gone through so many iterations. It's like, uh, there's just different. There, yeah, I'm older. I'm a, more mature. I'm able to look back at the 13 year old and go, oh, okay, I see why you made those decisions. Um, I see why this happened the way that it, that it did. So it's, I never want to like just say, that's who I am. Like, that's me. It's, it's not true. When Wendy's not writing amazing boundary-pushing memoirs, she works as a therapist. And you can actually learn more about her practice at wendyortiztherapy.com. Given that she writes and therapizes, it sort of made sense to ask her, did she find writing memoir therapeutic? I tend not to ever think of my writing as therapeutic. Um, there's two words that I always think of when people sometimes ask me questions about excavation in particular. It's like therapeutic or they, they say something about it being raw. Um, and those two things feel strange to me because 
I feel like actually I had to be pretty cooked to write this book. Like this book feels cooked enough to me. Um, and therapeutic to me feels a little bit more uncooked as well. So certainly in the first draft, th there probably was something therapeutic about it, especially sharing it. I'm remembering that the mentors that I had at the time were all men. And so it was strange to give this over, you know, to uh, there were it was two gay men and then one straight guy. And like, I, you know, it, it felt like a risk at that time to give this this book over with this content to them. It probably was therapeutic in that first draft on some level. But, you know, I would actually say some of the fiction that I was writing based on this situation before the first draft of this book was more therapeutic just to get myself comfortable with the idea that like people, how people might take this information. Um, I was so scared of how people were going to view me in my 20s. And as I got older, I became less concerned with that. And I think that's what helped bring this book out. But in terms of therapy, like therapy is what got me to write this book, you know, so there's something therapeutic there. I went into therapy believing that I was just trying to break up with my boyfriend. And my therapist, when I told her about the situation, was like, hold on, wait a second. Like, let's let's talk about that. And I was like, oh, yeah, right. It had an impact on like I, I was aware then it had an impact on who I was choosing to be with and ways that I was being in the world. And so I think that in that sense, like even just when it was sitting in a corner for so long because I just couldn't approach it, there was something therapeutic in that. But in the actual writing of it or of it being out in the world, I'm not sure that I would call it therapeutic. Usually, you know, when I was a teenager, I was not seeing this story or it was being told from that perspective of like, this person is a victim. And I think that I was pretty careful in this book to actually never use the word victim. And I can't even tell you that that was 100% conscious. But it was brought up to me several times by people who read it. And they were like, oh, you know, it's really interesting that you never use the words victim or perpetrator in this book. And I was like, well, then I must have hit the mark because that was what I was going for. I did want to show a fully dimensional teenage burgeoning sexuality because that is what this book is about. So much of it is about. And it definitely plays into my later sexuality. And, you know, that just seems like an important formative place to begin. Um, this was the first big major sexual relationship that I had. And so I wanted to be totally honest about where I was coming from. And I think that's why it also took many years because I, I did fear how people would perceive me. I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't sure that it would actually happen. Um, and if this was the only book that was out there, how I might be perceived, like how I wanted to, to not have it be salacious. I wanted it just to be authentic and so because I had access to all of my journals, I wrote about sex constantly, you know, and I still write about sex constantly. So it's like I'm going to be honest about who this person was and this is who she was. She was looking for experiences. And I think that I could have even gone further into her sexuality and like how it got formed. But I have editors, so they helped me, you know, just kind of like narrow it down to what fit for this book. You're like, you're not writing porn, right? <laughs> I just find it so strange when we talk about teenage girls as like asexual beings because that is not or my memory either at all. Either asexual or, yeah, they have no agency. 
they like they don't know what they want or something. And that's just not true for a lot of girls. Um, I think it might be true for some girls, but that wasn't true for me. I'm thinking, too, of a, an interview that Mary Carr did for the Paris Review. And I think it's actually a pretty old interview. But she talked specifically in that interview about how she also had been looking for books where you read about teenage libido, especially girls. And she was having a hard time finding that. And I think that probably in Cherry is where she was struggling to like, you know, how do I write about this? Like, where are the other examples? They're not really there. Have you been contacted by any 15-year-olds? No. Like, the way that you... No, I've had, you know what, that would be, wow, that would be intense because yeah. as a as a mandated reporter, that would be problematic. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't even think about yeah. that element. Yeah, yeah, which is, you know, something that I was even aware of when I went to therapy for the very first time. I was 17 and I mentioned that in the book, like going to the therapist, knowing that I needed to just like spill this to someone. And, you know, in the first conversation with a therapist, that is what they're going to tell you, that they're a mandated reporter and here are the things that you can talk about and what you can't talk about. And she mentioned that she would have to report and I never went back. We first met Wendy in 2015 when she was one of our speakers at BinderCon. I was moderating a panel on giving yourself permission to write memoir. And you know, our fifth BinderCon is going to be this fall in New York City. And if you want to see inspiring conversations like the one that Lee just described, you can get your own ticket at shop.bindercon.com. But back to the episode. Lee, so you as an author have worked both with a large mainstream publisher and a smaller, more independent press, right? Yes. So what's been the difference for you? It was really exciting to have my first novel come out with an independent press on Melville House. Um, You know, it had been rejected by all the major publishers, but it really felt like good having a small team working on it, focusing on it. I felt like the bell of the ball. They really put a lot into the publicity campaign for my first novel, and it paid off. I was in O Magazine, L Magazine. I was in the uh, New York Magazine's approval matrix. Wow. Um, So sometimes it can really pay off to have an indie behind you really focused on you. Well, that's one of the things that Wendy found as well. Back during our interview, one of the things that came up was that while she obviously, like you, you know, originally shopped her story to big publishers, was really looking for like, I'm going to make a huge splash. It's going to be like the biggest book of all time. She ended up at a small press, partly because she just got rejected a bunch of times. But As she went through the experience, she actually found that, especially in the case of a book like Excavation, a small press had a lot of benefits. I was so scared of this topic being taken, you know, to some weird extreme. And that was actually one of my fears. Like, if a bigger publisher did pick it up, how would they market it? I would have probably little to no say in how it was marketed. Um, And I don't know if you're familiar with, like, there was that book that came out a few years ago, ago called Tiger, Tiger yeah. by Margot Fragoso. And the reason I bring this up is because it was something that, like, editors put in their, their letters to my agent about, like, well, you know, they're comparing it to this book. And in this – that particular book was about a girl who was, like, seven years old, yeah, who um, a neighbor friend 
began grooming her and, um, and then sexually abusing her for a long period of time. You know, so it was a memoir, and it got, like, it was on prime time. Like, it got a lot of press, and I don't think the book did very well overall. And I think that, you know, that was really risky because this was the writer's, I think this was her first book. And so this is how she's going to be represented from here on out as the author of that book that was so intense. And I'm not sure why the public didn't really like grab onto this book. Um, I have some ideas about why, but it scared me. The thought like, oh, this is what my book is going to be compared to. Like, it's a pretty different situation. But this is what editors are thinking about when they look at this content. What was your process of getting published like? Yeah. So it all started with a modern love column that I wrote. I did not know what modern love was. I actually, a friend, Emily Rapp, was like, you should try and write a modern love column. And I was like, what's modern love? And she told me, she said, go look it up. Go look it up. Go write like 800 words on the topic of love. So I looked at some and I wrote one and just, you know, didn't think about it, just sent it out. And then suddenly I was getting a phone call like, yes, we want to print this. So what I learned from that experience was that if you are going to do that, you actually should have a book ready because agents start calling you immediately like after it gets printed in the New York Times. So... I didn't have a book about that topic because I wrote about my divorce, but I had this book. I had the bones of this book. It was more than bones, but it was still like, okay, well, I have I have to have something because these agents were contacting me and asking me, do you have something? So I signed with an agent and she started trying to sell the book. And that is where I learned, okay, so, you know, I had editors writing. I saw all of it. I asked for all of it. So I saw everything that the editors wrote. And I've actually done the exercise of like taking everything and putting it all in one document just to see how how it fared. And over and over again, we were told that the, the content was so dark. Um, they weren't sure that there was an audience for it. Um, they said constantly like saying how beautiful the writing was and how amazing the story was, but it was just a little dark and the content was a little, it might be a little bit much for the marketplace. And then like a few comparisons, like the one that I described for, um, Tiger Tiger. And I was quickly seeing that this was not going to be easy at all. Um, and my agent, you know, probably tried to sell it for like months and months. And then I happened to publish an essay at the Nervous Breakdown that sort of encapsulated all of this story. And it was an essay called Mixtape. And Kevin Sampsel, who's the publisher for Future Tense Books, saw the essay online, contacted me and said, hey, do you have something full length? And I said, well, my agent is trying to sell this book right now and we're not getting anywhere. So I'll have you take a look. So he took a look. And because small publishing is what it is and can move much faster, it was like he asked for it in July and was like by October was like, OK, let's publish this next July. Like, let's do this. So I broke ties with my agent and then suddenly it was being published the following year by a small press. 
We talk a lot about representation and how the stories that we see kind of shape our perceptions of the world and who we are. And I think it's so telling that we have these gatekeepers who are saying, I don't think this story will sell. I don't see the audience. Yes. And then the potential audience doesn't know how to ask for the book right. because they don't see it anywhere. Right. And it is not lost on me that many of these gatekeepers are white men. Yes. Um, so it's just really interesting to me to like kind of see that cycle yes. over and over. Yes. I will say that the editors are probably – the editors that we were in touch with were probably overwhelmingly white women. Yeah. It's, it's really – it's disconcerting, you know, because I know that means that there's like humongous amounts of writing out there that we're not getting to see because of these decisions that are being made this way. But at the same time, you know, you mentioned that small press – does take risks. And that is something that I, I I feel like I'm becoming more and more conscious of where I want my writing to be going. And I feel as I get older, maybe even like getting less and less commercial or like wanting less commercial places for my writing to be. So this has always felt like a good fit because I knew that I would get to s say something about, you know, like how it was going to be represented in the world. Um, and there were actually some conversations, too, about, like, there was something – I can't remember specifically now what it was. But, like, my publisher wanted to say something about the book. He published some, like, paragraph about it, and I had a problem with it. Like, it misconstrued something about the story. And I was able to say, oh, no, no, we can't say that. And I'm not sure that that would have happened with a bigger publisher, you know, if I would have been able to say, oh, wait a second. No, you're totally misconstruing this. So um, – yeah, there's so many great reasons to be with a small press with a book like this. There are so many iterations of like losing control of your own story mm -hmm. because when you, you know, let's say you write this one piece, you have complete control over it. The minute you can now just release it into the world, you could self-publish, you could put it on a right. blog, you have total control. The minute you bring in an editor and a press, suddenly you lose a little bit of yes. it. And then if you go to a bigger press, then you lose even more. And then if you want it to be a movie, you lose even more. Yes. And it's so strange because actually one of my favorite lines about writing came from when I was talking to Neil Strauss once. And he said that he started – he became a writer because he wanted to be understood. He like always grew up being like the weird kid. Nobody got him. He was – bullied, all of that. And he wanted people to understand him. But what he found was that the bigger a platform he got, the less he was uh, understood. Wow. It's so strange to think about, you know, how the things we think we want can pervert what we end up. Well, it can pervert, like, our original message, and especially when it's memoir and it's, yes. it's you. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I think that the, you know, thinking about like the platforms and like what is considered success, my ideas about that have changed a lot in the last two years since this book has been published. And I feel myself just getting more and more comfortable with the idea that I'm not going to be like necessarily like writing this commercially successful, you know, big press kind of book, because even in my attempts at doing that have not felt right to me. The agent that I have now who had also been one of the agents who contacted me after Modern Love, she wanted me to write that book. 
the modern love story book. Um, I understand like many books have been written after these columns. And I thought for a while, yeah, I can do that. And every single time that I try to do that, it just didn't come out right. And I've been asked to like, you know, look at this commercially successful book and do it like that. And that is just not my personality. I actually feel like you know, a lot has happened in the last two years that's made me go, you know what, I'm not even going to try to do that anymore because it doesn't feel right to me. So I'm getting more comfortable with the idea of like, okay, so I'll just be like this obscure person over here and I'll just keep doing the things the way that I want to do them. And then, you know, hopefully I have a little bit of an audience who will try and find my work here and there. And like, that's how we'll go about it. I feel like I tend now to look at writers who have long-term careers, writers who I respect, admire, whose writing I love. I look at what they're doing and how they've changed over time, what their trajectories have been like. And if I compare where I'm at with where these model writers are at in my mind, I'm on the right track. They were able to do the things that they wanted to do for many years. They had maybe several small press books and then one big press book um, after like 10 years of, you know, like four or five books under a small press. So I feel like that could be where I head. I don't know. That would be nice. I don't know what that book would be because um, well, I'm playing with a lot of different ideas for books right now. But so far, the commercially successful one has not popped up yet. Like I did get one phone call from CCA asking, you know, the film rights and TV rights, are they available for excavation? And that was months and months and months ago. And so, you know, you, you never know with something like that, like nothing could ever happen of it. But probably that is why I still have an agent, <laughs> because anything is possible. You know, like that's the that's the other thing is like. I do believe anything is possible. So, yeah, somebody could turn around and go, OK, yeah, we want to do this. And then I'll have decisions to make then. But I'm not going to base my life and what I'm doing now on like some idea that of something that might happen, you know. If you want to hear more from Wendy, you can follow her on Twitter at Wendy C. Ortiz. The Bindercast is a production of Out of the Binders, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender nonconforming writers. Follow us on Twitter at The Bindercast. For more information about Out of the Binders, go to bindercon.com or follow us at Bindercon on Twitter. This episode was hosted by Lux Albtrom and Lee Stein and produced by Jennifer Lai. Our theme music is Ready to Go by Miss Eves and Keish. Thanks to Brian Starley and Burgatron Music. <laughs>